Um, and Petra, you, you were both here two weeks ago, so okay. If anyone wanted, there are handouts, but I think everyone is here. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, great to be back with you again after taking a break. Uh, last week, this will be our second to last session in the book of Revelation. So we'll have uh, tonight, we'll go through chapter 21 and the first few verses of 22. And then next week, we'll finish 22 and we'll uh, do a bit of recap and um, look at the, the book as a whole. And then uh, the week after that, we'll kind of have a a final session on looking broad scope on some big themes throughout Revelation, uh, and also just some time for for uh, sharing and talking with one another about um, what we've learned and, and the impact this uh, the book has had over the past couple of months. Um, so look forward to that as well. Um, before we get started on the text today. I know it was two weeks ago now that we met, but um, we covered a lot of ground and there was uh, a lot of dense material. So did anyone have any questions or any follow-up things? Uh, I gave several handouts and things that you could, um, you could do some more research. Did anyone read any of those or find any of those helpful? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so we uh, so one of the things we we talked about um, two weeks ago now is that uh, the kind of the, the period of the, the tribulation that we right now are are in what uh, the scriptures refer to as the last days, and that it's not um, only some you know seven year period at the end of time um, before uh, things really get bad. Um, the Book of Revelation talks a lot about uh, suffering as, as a follower of Christ and um, the kind of the, uh, the epitome of that is, uh, is in, in martyrdom, um, especially for us today in the U.S. Most of uh, what, what it looks like to be a, a follower of Jesus and, and the pushback we get or the, um, or the suffering we go through doesn't result in losing our head or, um, or getting, it, getting chopped off, whatever. Um, I, I do think that, again, a lot of the, the language of the book being, um, being uh, symbolic and full of imagery it does, does tell us about um, the suffering. We will go through, we know, again, that, that the, um, the judgment being poured out on unbelievers will, will not be directed at us. Um, we, we still live in a sinful world and feel the effects of that. And, uh, and so in some ways are impacted by that and, and the world will only grow more and more antagonistic and, um, and hate God's people and God more and more. Um, what exactly that looks like, does it look like every Christian being, um, being martyred? I, I don't think that's, uh, th that will be the case. Um, might be for some, but um, but for for each of us, it's not necessarily what it looks like. It, uh, I think the the suffering we see in the book is just a picture of how how the world and how um, those who 
belong to uh, to the beast will uh, will continue to be counter to the people of God. Uh, we talked about several weeks ago um, Babylon and Babylon being um, representative of all nations, all cultures, all peoples who are are contrary to the things of God. Um, and so everyone who who is uh, who, who is in league with Babylon, so to speak, will will naturally um, hate those who are a part of uh, the, uh, the the people of God, as we'll see in this chapter, the New Jerusalem, um, who are, are citizens of, of heaven. Um, so I, does that help at all? Seeing. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, and when we, when we talked about the Antichrist, um, one, uh, one thing I tried to uh, show is how the, the depiction of, uh, of Satan as the dragon, um, the beast, and the false prophet, uh, especially with the false prophet and the beast, that there's a, a lot of language that uh, it, it depicts their the power and the way they have influence. I don't think that it's necessarily with like the Antichrist that it's it's one individual at one point of time who is the Antichrist. If you read um, if you read First John, it's always the Antichrists plural. Um, and so I think we, we we see many Antichrists, many many who are uh, who are against. Uh, God and, and especially with uh, with the beasts, we saw that their influences um, in in the world through um, through economic and political means and through um, through through nations and rulers and uh, we we see evil nations that that oppress the people of God. Um, in John's day, it was was the uh, the the nation of um, Rome or the, uh, the the capital and the uh, the rulers of Rome who who brutally oppressed the, the people of God, and we see that all, all down to our day, the, the way that Christians throughout the world are um, oppressed by evil cultures or nations or peoples. Um, and so, so yeah, there, there, there may be an antichrist, someone who is, uh, who, who is worse than any other, um, but, I, but I think the, the key point is seeing how, um, how Satan's Deception and dominion. Um, currently, how is we we know he doesn't have have ultimate um, authority over over all things yet. Um, during the, this age, until Christ returns and, and finally um, throws him into the lake of fire, as Revelation twenty says, uh, he will will be antagonistic against the people of God. And so, the way that he he seeks to devour and um, and uh, destroy the church is uh, often through political or um, governing means, and that was one of the things we saw in the beasts. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's it won't necessarily be one, you know, one person at a certain point in time who rules the world. Um, we see Satan's uh, influence and um, his attempts to destroy through throughout church history, um, and we'll. we'll continue to see that until uh, the return of Christ. Does that, does that help at all?
Okay. And if I remember, if it's helpful, is this correct me if I'm wrong? But we talked about how the uh, the concept of a nation or a, you know one ruling kingdom against God was essentially the fact that all kingdoms that are not God are against God. So yeah. they're like a whole, but they're against God. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. 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 Things things definitely aren't getting better. Did you have a question? On your earlier statement, you said inside the United States. Why that? Oh, in, um, did, when did I say that? What was I referring about to? Martyrs. Oh, about, oh, about martyrs? Uh, just within, yeah, within the U.S. for us, I mean, it, when, we, when we read about persecution in the Bible, I think it's often hard for us to imagine this type of thing, and yet we hear about uh, Christians in the Middle East or in other parts of the world who um, are literally being beheaded or uh, imprisoned for their faith. And so um, I think because of where we live, we're a bit removed from that. And, and because of where we live, we might not face that type of, uh, of persecution. Um, yet we see it in, in all sorts of other ways, just in the way, ways that... Uh, well, yeah, and... Yeah, and, and we see it um, in the ways that now politics and and um, and all different things in, in our culture are, are decidedly anti-Christian. They are uh, against Christians, and we are you know um, uh, ostracized or, or whatever. And so the the persecution is different uh, in the way that. Um, the people of, of the beast or the people who are against God, the way that they oppress and seek to destroy uh, the people of God is different in, in different places. Um, does that help at all? I understand what you're saying, but our country is on a slippery slope, so how long are we going to be protected? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, any other questions in regards to the millennium or anything we talked about in the last couple of weeks? Uh, anything that, that you read? Well, then we can uh, go ahead and get, get started in our text for today. I'll, I'll open us in prayer um, as we, we dive into this text. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's, it's so beautiful, and so there's uh, so much we can, we can talk about, and um, I know my words can't do it justice. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we, we ask for your blessing on this time. I ask for your help uh, as we, we go through this text, which is so beautiful, which is so glorious, which is so full of eternal truth that, that is, is absolutely 100% certain. I know that, that in our time tonight and even in our time uh, on earth in our entire lives, we, we will not be able to exhaust the riches of your word, uh, even the riches of this chapter and the, the beautiful things that it, it tells us about our, our certain future. Would you open our eyes to see what you have for us? Would your spirit help us to understand uh, the words that he has inspired? And would you, would you use this text in our lives, in our hearts, Father, to, uh, to 
to, to encourage us, to bring us hope, would we uh, walk away tonight um, just beaming with, with hope and with, uh, with joy as we have reflected on the glorious new creation that is going to come. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the slain lamb. Amen. So we've got, gotten to Revelation 21. Um, it's crazy how fast, at least for me, it feels like we've uh, gone through it and we certainly could have spent a lot more time um, going through different things. But now as we reach the end of the book, we, uh, we really get to the climax of uh, not only the book, but as, as we reach the end of the Bible here, we, we wrap things up and... Um, one, one thing that I, I think we've seen throughout the book of Revelation as a whole is that it, it is a, a fitting end to the entire story of Scripture. Um, I pointed out at the beginning of our study uh, some of the um, similarities it had to the, uh, the letters of the New Testament and how it, it kind of acts as the, the grand finale of letters to uh, the church. It is kind of the climax of prophecy. It is the prophecy of prophecies, and it uh, acts as the, the climax of uh, the, the prophetic word of God. Um, and here, as we, we reach the end of uh, really the, the overarching narrative of Scripture, um, from, from the beginning of time to the end of time, it caps us off, and it does so in, in really a, in, an amazing way. Um, again, I, I can't stress how much I love these, these verses in this chapter. This is, um, this is one of the most beautiful um, passages in, in the Bible when it comes to our hope and what we look forward to. And so um, in your handout, I, I, of course, gave you uh, a section with uh, a lot of parallels and allusions. Uh, one thing we'll see is just how dependent as all of Revelation is, but especially these chapters, how dependent they are on the Old Testament. Um, I forgot to, I, I should have had you uh, do this a couple of weeks ago before we read this chapter, and I would, would love to just do it tonight. We, uh, we don't have time, but um, really we should read Genesis 1, ch- chapters 1 through 3, um, Isaiah 60 through 66, uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48, um, there's, there's several just large, large chunks of the Old Testament that um, almost verbatim sometimes John is just drawing the imagery from, especially uh, Isaiah uh, 65 and 66, um, the, the imagery from the, uh, the, the prophecy of the new temple at the end of Ezekiel. John is just drawing this, this imagery and this language, and so it's, it's very much dependent on what has come before especially when we, when we talk about the New Jerusalem, the New Temple, uh, and what John does with the, the, the um, theology and the message of Ezekiel. So um, there's a lot of connections. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to show before we, we, uh, we zoom into the text is looking um, at, at the, the whole of, of this passage, with fitting it within the whole of Scripture. Um, if you turn to that second page, there, we, we find a lot of parallels, especially between the first few chapters of Genesis and the last couple chapters of Revelation. Um, when, you're, when you're reading in the Bible, um, there's a, a literary form or tactic uh, called an inclusio. If you're in the Psalms Bible study with Sherry, you've probably talked about this. So an inclusio is when 
you have a common phrase or word or theme or message uh, at the beginning of a work and then also at the very end. You see it a lot in the Psalms. Um, Psalm begins with praise the Lord and then ends with praise the Lord and it kind of uh, acts as, as a, a lid bringing everything together. It shows you that it's obviously an important part of the, the work since it's emphasized twice at the beginning and the end. Um, we see this in other places in Scripture. Uh, for example, in, in, um, in, in Romans, uh, which we're studying with uh, the men on Wednesdays, Paul begins at the very beginning talking about um, bringing about the, the obedience of faith. And then he uses that same phrase at the very end. And so there's, there's things like that that you'll see if you, if you pay, uh, pay close attention. Oh, yeah, this was mentioned at the very beginning. Um, and often when you are reading any book, um, whether it's, uh, it's a book in the Bible or whether it's uh, a book you're reading for fun, um, most writers, they will emphasize what's most important to them at the beginning and the end. And so uh, I even had a professor once tell me, you know, if you're running short on time, you don't have time to read the whole chapter, just read the introduction, read the end, and you'll probably be okay. Um, and if we did that with, with the Bible, um, we would miss a lot, <laughs> but uh, we also would get uh, a pretty good picture of what is important in terms of the whole overarching story of Scripture. And so uh, maybe you, you, you want to do that later this week, read these last couple chapters again and then go back and read um, the first few chapters of Genesis. What we see is, uh, is we, we start in a garden and we end in a garden. And so you have this inclusio with the, the entire Bible uh, about this garden. And obviously it's not just about um, a garden that you're planting your tomatoes and lettuce and whatever in, but it's, it's a garden that uh, is beautiful and it is uh, about the presence of God and dwelling with his people. And that shows us something about the nature of the entire Bible that, uh, that is one of the, the primary themes is about God in the beginning creating humans uh, different than the rest of creation and, and about uh, his, his desire to have for himself a people who, who dwell with him and who worship him and who uh, experience all of his love and mercy and compassion. Um, and we get that in the very beginning of the Bible. Things go horribly wrong and the rest of scripture is getting us back to Eden. But even more than getting us back to Eden, it's way better than Eden. Uh, which is what we see in these chapters. Um, so note some, uh, so I, I pointed out some of, the, uh, some of the parallels here. In Genesis 1, we have in the beginning, Genesis, uh, in the end of Revelation, we hear from uh, the Lord who is the beginning and the end. We have the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then in Revelation, we have the new heavens and new earth. God says in the beginning, let there be light. The end of Revelation, God is light. God gives light light, um, creates humans who will rule over creation, and here at the end they reign forever with uh, the slain lamb. There's a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, there's a tree of life in the New Jerusalem, uh, there's a river in the garden, there's a river flowing from, uh, from the temple, the river of the water of life. 
there's gold in the Garden of Eden. The city was made of pure gold in Revelation. Um, though they were cursed, and Adam, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were told, you will surely die. Um, there's no more death in the New Jerusalem. Uh, they, they were cursed. There's no longer any cursing. There was painful toil uh, after their rebellion. There's no more pain in the, uh, the future city of God. They were given garments of skin, how they have robes, uh, which are their righteous deeds, the, the white linen. Uh, there is uh, cherubim that guarded the garden. There's angels at the gates of the new Jerusalem. Um, one in, in Genesis had a flaming sword. Now there's fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so we see all these, these parallels. Um, it, it's, it's amazing, really. It's, and it's, uh, it's one of the things when we... Um, just on a bit of a separate note, when we talk about the Bible and the reliability of the Bible, which is constantly under attack, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of historical arguments that we can make about the reliability of, um, the reliability of Scripture. And, um, a year and a half ago now, I taught a class here, uh, three, three sessions on how we got the Bible, and we talked about a lot of that stuff. Um, and, and I love that. That's one of my favorite topics. What I probably love more and what probably is more convincing to me about the, the reliability and the authority of Scripture, its trustworthiness, the fact that it, it is from God, is seeing how it all fits together. Um, it, 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 I'm not smart enough to, to do this, so I, this can't be human. The, the, the Scriptures are, are so complex, and yet there is this, this unity throughout all of them even this, this seemingly simple thing of just beginning and ending with, with all these, uh, these parallels, it, I think it, it speaks to uh, the, the divine intelligence between, uh, behind rather, uh, the scriptures. And it's, it's beautiful as, as we study the scriptures and we, we notice these things. Um, so it's, it's amazing how at the very end of scripture you have the, the, the climax, the conclusion, uh, it titled it the, the end of the beginning. And that's it, what it really is as we, we see all these parallels. And so uh, within the book of Revelation itself, we also find that, uh, and I mentioned this at the very beginning, uh, and I again brought out how a lot of times if you look at the very beginning of a book or a work, that those themes are, are then uh, seen throughout the entire work. We saw that with Revelation and some of the things brought up in the addresses to the seven churches in chapters two to three. I noted that we would see a lot of those same things uh, throughout the book and, and hopefully you were able to pick up on some of that. Um, Greg Buell says, the letters, chapters two to three, which describe the present state of the church and the concluding section, chapters 21 and 22, describing the glorified church in heaven, are closely and deliberately linked by the theme of promise and fulfillment. And so uh, what he's drawing out is how in the, the first couple of chapters, you have the letters to the seven churches, which were seven 
actual churches, and yet number seven and uh, the messages that were given to them wasn't just for those churches. It was for uh, the fullness of the people of God, for uh, the church throughout all ages, uh, the number seven being completion and, uh, and fullness. And so um, this was mes- these are messages to the people of God in the present. And we saw in those addresses uh, the problems in churches. Um, many of them, almost all of them, were commended for something good, and yet almost all of them were, com- uh, were, uh, were not commended, were rebuked for uh, sin or uh, compromise or false teaching um, in their midst. And so in the present church, we find false apostles. There were uh, false Jews. There were Christians dwelling where Satan's throne is. Um, There were people in the church who had died. The church was uh, the earthly lampstand, the presence of God on earth. Uh, The church contained idolaters, and we found Christians being persecuted. Now in the future church, the church that is described, the people of God that is described in Revelation 21 and 22, we find the true apostles, the tribes of the true Israel, Christians dwelling where God's throne is. All in the perfected church are alive. God and the Lamb are the lamps. They are the light. The church has no idolatry or lying, and Christians reign as conquerors. And so we see that contrast between present and future. And that is part of the the tension we've seen throughout the book of the already, not yet, that we are already in the kingdom, and yet it is not completed, it is not consummated, it is not yet fully here. And so this is one of the things that we look forward to, is the is the consummation and the completion of these things. And then, again, uh, what Beale noted is that what connects the, the letters to the churches and the end of the book is the theme of promise and fulfillment. Um, throughout the entire book of Revelation, one of the things we've seen is, is that conquering, overcoming, is one of the primary messages given to the people of God. Uh, Throughout the, uh, throughout the book as a whole, we have this call to conquer, this call to follow in the footsteps of the lamb who was slain, who conquered by his blood. Uh, and in each of the addresses to the seven churches, it ended with a promise to the one who conquers, it will be given. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, seven times. And it gave this promise to the one who will conquer. And so um, on that, the, the final page of that little packet on the left are all the promises. To the one who conquers, they will eat of the tree of life. They will be a pillar in the temple. They will be a part of the heavenly Jerusalem. will have the name of their God. Their names will be written in the book of life. They will be clothed in white. They will have a white stone and receive the morning star. They will rule the nations and will sit with Christ on his throne. And they will be saved from the second death. And then at the end of the book, we find the fulfillment of those things. As Christ has returned... He has judged his enemies, and now he is, uh, he is renewing all things and is going to dwell with his people. These promises are fulfilled to the ones who come and, in Revelation 21, uh, freely drink from the fountain of life, uh, and the ones who conquer, uh, they receive these things. They receive the, uh, the fulfillment of these promises. And so, in the new creation, the tree of life bears fruit in heaven, for the believer to eat. Um, God and the lamb are 
the temple in heaven where the believers dwell. God's people are the foundation and the walls of the city. They are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. They have the name of God God on their foreheads. Their names are written in the book of life. That is why uh, they, they were welcomed into heaven, unlike those whose names are not written in the book of life, who face eternal judgment. Um, they are clothed as, as a bride adorned for her husband. They are wearing white linen. Part of the city whose foundations are precious stones, they, they become a part of the city. Uh, the light of the city is God and the Lamb, and they live with Jesus, who is the bright morning star. They will reign with him forever and ever, and they are saved from the second death. And so we see how all these things are filled in, in the end, in the return of Christ. Those who, who overcome uh, are blessed by these things. Um, did anyone pick up on any of those connections, the ones from Genesis and the end of Revelation, or even those connections between the promises to the ones who conquered? Hopefully uh, you, you saw some of those things as you uh, were reading, especially within the book of Revelation. It's, it's beautiful to see the, uh, the future promises and the, the already, already not yet, again, the, um, the present life and these promises given and, and how those are fulfilled. So, uh, so that's, that's a, a, a bigger overview of, of Revelation 21 and 22. And there, again, there's so much there and just how, how it caps off the story of Scripture. It really provides the fulfillment of um, the, the commission given to Adam to uh, rule over the earth and to subdue it. Uh, it. It is the fulfillment of that and also the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant given to Ab- Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 that uh, he would be made into a, a nation uh, that is, is greater than the stars of heaven, greater than the sand of the seashore. He would be a blessing to all peoples. Um, these, these chapters fulfill that and, and they point over and over to uh, the universal nature of God's salvation. Not that he saves everyone, but that he saves people from all over the earth. And we saw that also in other places in the book, like chapter 7, where you have um, the great multitude who is purchased by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe and tongue and nation and peoples. Uh, We see that again here at the very end, where all peoples, all types of peoples, are welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth. So what we find in the end is, is the fulfillment of what Adam and Eve could not do, what Abraham was promised, um, what the people of Israel were promised and yet uh, continually failed in. And we find the, the climax of the entire biblical story. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, so we, we find, again, the, the inclusio of beginning and ending in a garden. Uh, if we look at the Old Testament, and I may have brought this up before, I love talking about this, but uh, it, the, the, the way that the, uh, the books are ordered in Hebrew, in, um, in the Jewish Bible, is different than we ordered them in English, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think there's actually significance to looking and using the, the order um, that they were originally put in. And so uh, the final book of the Old Testament in Hebrew is the book of Chronicles. 
It's a book that um, a lot of people skim over, that they get bored with. That's uh, telling the same story as Kings, and it, it starts with nine chapters of genealogies, which isn't always the best, uh, best hook for people or doesn't seem the most relevant for their daily devotionals. Yet it's, it's really an important book for, uh, for the, the entire Old Testament. Um, when it's seen at the very end, it, it kind of summarizes everything that came before. Those genealogies at the very beginning, they go from Adam all the way down to, uh, to after the exile and where they are at. Um, one of the main focuses of the book of Chronicles is on David, and yet it's not so much focused on the uh, literal historical David, it's looking forward to the future David who will come, uh, the, this, the, the one from the line of David who will be king forever, promised to David in, in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant. Uh, and it, it looks forward to this, and it even ends uh, it, it, the book of Chronicles ends so uh, so strangely. It ends really in the middle of a sentence. It's talking about um, the one who is going to go up and rebuild the temple. And it says, Yahweh, his God, will be with him and let him go up. And then it just ends. And let him go up. And it ends on this cliffhanger. And it's, it's, it, it, it's very odd. And especially if you don't read it at the very end of... Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, um, but yet it has, again, this future forward focus where it's, it's looking for the one from the line of David who is going to come, who is going to go up, uh, he is going to have his God with him, and he's going to rebuild the temple, uh, and the temple is, uh, is physical, but it's also much more than that. It's, it's about uh, spiritual, the spiritual exile and the, the redemption of these people. And then what's crazy is you flip over a page, uh, if you had the Hebrew Bible next to the New Testament, and then you get into Matthew. And how does Matthew begin? With a genealogy. And Matthew begins with this genealogy that shows that Jesus is from the line of David. He is the son of David. Um, and we know Jesus is the one who, he in fact, he calls himself the temple in John 2. He says, to destroy this body, and to destroy this temple, and, and I will, it will be rebuilt in three days. He is the temple, um, the body of Christ on earth, us uh, as his people. We are the temple as we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And then now we read about the temple uh, in in. Revelation 21, and it is about the, the full presence of God. It is where the Lamb is. Uh, and so this is the, the, the future temple that was promised. Um, and so if you, if you read the Hebrew Bible, you begin in the garden and you end uh, with David. You end with this uh, genealogy um, moving you down to David. And you, you end with uh, uh, an eschatological, this future, fo uh, this future focus on the one who is to come. The, NT, the New Testament then begins with a genealogy and it moves from the son of David to a garden. And so you, in the Old Testament, you go from garden to David. New Testament, you go from the son of David to a garden. Um, it's just amazing how the scripture is, is organized and is it's built. It's so amazing, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it wasn't just humans who wrote it. Um, so, as we get into Revelation 21, is there any any questions, any um, any thoughts, anything that that stood out um, before we we just dive into the text? You know, another part of the scripture that I read Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, they're especially significant here and uh, in, in the description of the New Jerusalem. The other place where you get a ton of measurements is in uh, Ezekiel at the very end, uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, you get them in the, the description of the tabernacle. Uh, one 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 thing that you find, especially in uh, those chapters in Exodus, that descri- it gives God's instructions for the tabernacle, and then it like repeats all of them, and it says that they, they did them. Uh, what you find there is it, it's, it's so specific, and it has to be done a certain way. It shows that, that uh, if God is going to dwell with a people, a holy God is going to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, it can't just be, uh, be be lax. It can't just be oh yeah, whatever goes. Just throw something together. Just you know, you know, get some people and and build this thing. No, it has to be according to every single detail. Uh, and that's why in the end of Exodus, you it it keeps saying and Moses did everything uh, exactly as the Lord Lord told him, and it shows how he he followed it. Um, and so you find that specifically with with those measurements how. Uh, important it is that these things are, are done right. Um, if you mess it up, it's uh, it's not good. And so that's uh, why you have the measurements there. When you get to Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel is super interesting. Uh, those last few chapters, they seem, uh, it, it talks about this new temple that will be built. And so the question is, well, is this like a, an actual physical temple that is going to be built? Um, some people say, yeah, it's, it's going to be rebuilt. I, I don't think that it's a literal temple. And the, the reason is that there's several reasons. Um, one, it gives you some uh, just crazy measurements. And if you look at where it says it's going to be on top of the hill in Jerusalem. And if you follow all the measurements, uh, it, it doesn't fit in, like on, if you look on a map, it doesn't fit. It's, the measurements are too big. And so if it's literal, then the person's wrong because it's gonna like end up in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's also extremely two-dimensional. It, only, it doesn't, it, so if you wanted to actually try and build the temple you find in Ezekiel 40 through 48, you'd, you'd have to make up a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the depth or the height or whatever because it's, it's only two-dimensional. It doesn't give you the fullness. Um, and the other, there's just other things in the description of the temple and the sacrifices that seem to be, uh, seem to be contrary to other places. You, uh, you find um, just some, some weird instructions. And so I think what, what you have at the end of Ezekiel is, um, is a focus on certain theological um, truths or theological distinctions that those measurements draw out. Um, for instance, the, uh, the, the vertical uh, nature of the temple—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's very tall, and it's up on top of a on a on a hill. 
Uh, it speaks to uh, the, the preeminence of God and his, uh, his greatness, his elevation over um, humanity. The, the location and the geography, it talks about the, the centrality of God, that God is central to all things. Um, there's limited access and there's other measurements which, which speak to the holiness of God, uh, the, the complete um, devotedness of God to, uh, to his, his glory and to his uh, justice and judgment and love. And so um, there, there's a lot of those, those measurements that, again, they, they can't exactly be literal because it, they, they either don't fit or they're not really complete. Um, and another thing that you find as we, that that noting that becomes important for then how we approach Revelation, because if we read the measurements in Revelation 21, uh, they're they're all different than the ones in Ezekiel. So you either have two different temples, um, or one of the authors is wrong, or they're not actually literal. Um, another interesting thing that you find when you look outside of uh, the biblical text, there's um, uh, in the time between the writing of the Old Testament and uh, the coming of Christ, there were a bunch of other works written that weren't uh, a part of the, the Bible. They, they shouldn't be. They were never um, intended to be. They were just other religious writings. Uh, and you find a lot of other religious writings um, that have a similar uh, apocalyptic genre uh, and there's several texts, actually, that were found, several uh, of which were found um, uh, in the, the 1940s and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they found these sectarian writings about uh, a future temple. And what you, what you seem to find if you date all of them is it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the one in Revelation is the biggest. It's just ginormous. And so... Again, there's either these contradictory um, uh, measurements or statements about how big the temple's going to be, or it's not as much about the actual physical uh, measurements. They're, they're communicating something about the nature of this temple, about the nature of God, um, and the, the nature of uh, the, this future uh, coming kingdom and, and place of God. And so I think that makes the most sense in Revelation, and um, especially with the particular numbers John uses. Um, I went through and like circled how many times it says 12, just 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, over and over and over in this chapter, or multiples of 12, uh, 12 times 12, 144,000, or uh, 12 times 1,000, 12,000. Uh, and so uh, there's a particular focus that John has in giving his measurements. Um, if you were to reconstruct this literally, it would be ginormous um, if you were, and that's part of the reason that this act, this can't be like a, a restoration of the literal city of Jerusalem. If you were to place this on Jerusalem, it would like cover like half of Africa and up into Europe. And so it's, it's not a, a, a literal, um, this isn't, heaven isn't going to be a big golden cube. Um, I've heard that before, and I, I don't think that fits with, with what John is doing here. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the important um, truths John is communicating in these measurements. It's, it's actually quite, quite, uh, quite amazing what he does. Um, Sherry, did you have? I was just going to say, I love how the end of Ezekiel 
closes after he does go through all the measurements because then he says, and this is what finishes the book, because it says, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there, which is exactly what Revelation is just saying. Like, this is the place of God. Exactly. So good. Yes. Yeah, so um, there, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of detail included here, um, and it, I think it's all important in giving us a picture of um, not necessarily what it will literally physically look like, but about uh, the type of place this is going to be. And so as we get into uh, to chapter 21, John uh, gets another vision, uh, this time of the, the new heavens and new earth. The first heaven, the first earth pass away uh, the sea was no more. It's interesting that he mentions there's, there's no more sea. Um, we've talked about this a couple of times. In the Bible, oftentimes the sea is not a good place. And we've even seen that in Revelation. Uh, we saw the beast who was thrown down and, and uh, came up out of the sea. And then uh, in, in chapter 18 with uh, Babylon, there was uh, the, the evil nations who were described as the, the sand on the seashore. So there's, there's something, especially in Revelation, about the sea that is, that is evil, that is, um, is chaotic, that is not good. And in the new creation, there's no sea. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be any sources of water. It says later that there's going to be a big river running through it. So uh, clearly, it's, it's, again, it's this, this imagery of what John is talking about by sea. He's talking about... Um, evil and chaos, and there's going to be none of that here. Uh, and now John sees the new Jerusalem, the holy city. I just mentioned this isn't the literal earthly Jerusalem. It, it couldn't be. It wouldn't be. Uh, it wouldn't make sense here. Uh, and even Jerusalem and, and Zion in the Old Testament, it, it always pointed forward to something more, uh, an incredible passage uh, that, that speaks to this is in the end of Hebrews talks about uh, talks about Abraham and his faith. It's in chapter 11, the great uh, the hall of faith, the, the great chapter on the faith of all these, of these Old Testament saints. Um, it, it says that Abraham um, he died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Um, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city and so there's uh, he, he, Abraham looking forward to this, this future city which is to come. Uh, we also find at the end of the book in let's see, chapter 11. my notes. In Hebrews 12, uh, no. And 13, it talks about looking forward to uh, uh, not the lasting city. We seek the city. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so it's looking forward. That's in 13, uh, 14. Looking forward to this future city. Um, 
And here in Revelation 22, it is it has arrived, and it has uh, come out of heaven. It is uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. This is in stark contrast to Babylon, the harlot, who uh, we, we talked about uh, in chapter 17 and 18. Uh, this is the bride of God who is, is prepared, who is adorned uh, beautifully for her husband. And we, we also saw the marriage supper uh, in, in chapter 19, an image of that. And so verse 3, this, this loud voice from the throne, this is, this is amazing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Instead of the dwelling place, it could be translated, behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them. Um, it's about the, the, the presence of God, which is, was, uh, was centralized in the tabernacle, um, being with his people. And, and now, in the, the new creation, the dwelling place of God is with man. Uh, as, as Sherry read from the end of Ezekiel, uh, the, the name of the, the temple was God is there, the Lord is there. And that is what we find here. Yahweh is there, the Lamb is there. And... There, there's a lot of background in the Old Testament to that phrase, they will be his people and God will be their God. That is, you see that all throughout, especially the, um, the, the Pentateuch. Um, you will be my people, I will be your God. And here that is, uh, that is, is consummated. It's, it's brought to its completion as uh, no more will God have a people who are rebellious, who are who are uh, sinful, they have been redeemed and washed by the blood of the Lamb, and they will dwell with him forever, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. This is all imagery from Isaiah 65 and 66. Uh, Beautiful promises for us in in a sinful, broken world. No more crying, no more death, um, no more pain. The one seated on the throne says that he is making all things new. And he's not, he's not destroying everything, but renewing everything. He's, he makes all things new. Um, think about even what he does with us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul uh, says something that is, is similar to this. He says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, the new has come. And that is what God does with his people. He, uh, he renews them, he puts the, their, uh, his spirit in them. And this is what he does with uh, creation, is he renews it and he makes it new. Um, so and, the earth won't pass away then? Yeah, it's, yeah what, what does it mean by, by pass away? And it's, uh, sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what does it mean by pass away? Um, and and part of it is th- things will drastically change, and we've seen that even in Revelation and the judgment that is poured out. Um, things like the, the mountains uh, moving and all that. They're speaking to the, the the world as it is changing, 
and uh, there certainly is a is a, a reality in which uh, things will drastically change. So is um, it kind of like a refurbished? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that there. But then, in another sense, it, it where whereas all these things are, are changing, there it, it's also a renewal and it's a, a restoration, and it's not. Um, it, it is a a reset in some ways, but it's it's also making things better than they ever were. And yeah, sorry. Yeah, like it's you know it's, it's still your body, but it's yeah. different and better than it yeah, ever it was. And, um, any, any imperfections are all gone. Yeah, and so uh, so there's and it and it's even more than just you know restoring Eden. It's it's way better than Eden. It's it's um, it's way more than Eden ever was, and this is what Eden was was looking forward to. So so yeah, it's. Um, it's a it's a bit of a bit of both. There is this judgment and and, and destruction in, in one sense, and also this restoration and uh, making all things new. Um, even just the way that it's phrased, it's um, it, it, it speaks to that. Um, I, I love and we saw this a couple of weeks ago. I love how, just how it repeats. Uh, these words are are trustworthy and true, um, especially when it, last time it was when it said that it was in the light of uh, this incredible judgment and believing that this judgment would happen, that, that our enemies would be judged, that the people against God would be judged. Uh, so he says, these words are faithful and true. You can believe these words and hear um, this promise of the, the new creation, which is hard for us to believe sometimes. He says, believe these, they are trustworthy and true. Uh, God's word is powerful. God's word does things we see in scripture and his word here uh, does things. He says, I'm making all things new and it, it accomplishes what it sets out to do. In verse six, we have the phrase, it is done. And I mentioned this um, several weeks ago when we were at the end of the seven bowls, that same phrase was used, it is done. Um, and there's other times in scripture where that is used as well, right? Jesus on the cross, it is done. Uh, Psalm 22, it is done, it is finished. Um, so we have it at the end of Christ's atoning work. We have it at the end of God's judgment. And here we have, it is done uh, when the new creation is ushered in and things are, are made new um, those last two things, the judgment and the new creation, that they, they happen um, upon the second coming of Christ. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's beautiful just to hear those words, it is done, and that, that God will do those things because he is the Alpha and the, the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Um, he is the, the Genesis and Revelation, we might say. He is, he is from A to Z. Uh, he is eternal. He is sovereign. He will do these things. And so then he promises to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Might remind you of the words of Jesus who promises that he offers living water. The words of Isaiah 55, which also offer uh, to come and drink from this water. Uh, we will be 
refreshed, we will be sustained, we will be nurtured, we will be, we will be fed uh, by the Lord. So then there's, uh, again, this promise to the one who conquers. And to the one who conquers, they will have this heritage that is everything that has just been promised. Uh, he, I will be his God and he will be my son. Referencing 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David, uh, which we know uh, the true David, the, the, the ultimate offspring of David is Jesus, and he is the one who uh, was, is the eternal son. And we also, if we are in Christ, are adopted as children, we will uh, eternally be the, the children of God. However, those who refuse to take this water, those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to, uh, to submit to the lordship of Christ and, uh, and deny uh, the beast and deny uh, Babylon, they, they, have, uh, they have judgment awaiting them. This is eternal punishment. The, the lake which burns with fire and sulfur, the second death, and this is eternal, we saw in chapter 19 and 20, this future judgment uh, that Satan and the beast and the false prophet face. Death and Hades are thrown into, <clears throat> into the lake of fire, and all those who are not uh, in the new Jerusalem, those who do not have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they uh, receive the penalty for their sins. What's a good way to think about the word conquers? Because I know we've seen this several times, and I can't remember if we've talked about like what a good picture of that is. Um, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking like holding fast and faithful, like the book has called us to over and over. But what? Yeah, the yeah. The word um, the word conquer. It's actually um, uh, so it's Greek, uh, and it's the word uh, uh, nikao, which we get Nike. Uh, so just wear Nikes, um, and you'll conquer. No, um, but uh, so so conquering. Yeah, it is. It's being faithful. It is uh, remaining steadfast. It is not compromising. Um, really, the the definition of conquering is summarized in the life of Jesus, the life of the Lamb, and so it is living like Jesus. Jesus was faithful unto death, um, and so we too. Are called to be faithful unto death. Um, we might not all die. Uh, well, we will all die, uh, but we might not all die as a result of uh, being persecuted or martyred, yet we are all called to, to remain faithful in whatever context the Lord has us, uh, to persevere um, through our, our witness to the Word of God and the, the, uh, the testimony of Jesus you find that those paired together throughout the book, the, um, the, 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 the testimony of Jesus. Um, and that is, is how we continue to fight and conquer. When you, when you look at the uh, chapters like uh, chapter 7 and 14, and you have the, the great multitude standing with the Lamb, um, really, they're, they're almost, and in chapter 19, they're, they're the army of the Lamb. Yet it's a, a different type of army than we might think they are those who uh, they they go to war by uh, being faithful unto death and by uh, being witnesses to the gospel. Uh, 
and so uh, yeah, it's, it's about uh, it's about obedience and commitment and faithfulness uh, until the end, whatever that end is. I'm just thinking if like that's the call to me, like I want to make sure I understand what that part means. <laughs> like yeah. that's the thing that's required of me. I want to know. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the part where it goes into cowardly. I looked that up. Yeah, yeah, and it's, um, again, and we want to balance that uh, our salvation is not, uh, we, we are justified by faith, and um, look at someone like Peter, who was very cowardly on the night of his Lord's uh, crucifixion, and um, yeah, so I think the, the cowardly here, it's, it's about a, a whole life of cowardice, this uh, selfishness, as you mentioned, this um, not... Uh, not willing, not willing to to be faithful, uh, not willing to uh, remain steadfast. Uh, you live a life of compromise, and um, yeah. Well, as we then move into verse nine, it's it's kind of a, a second section of this chapter, and we we had this first uh, introduction to the bride, and now we get another. Um, introduction and uh, the angel which calls John up to uh, to to be shown the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And um, one thing that uh, it's good to to ask: okay, Well, well, who is the bride of the Lamb? What is the the bride? And um, most of us, when we speak of the bride of Christ, we talk about we, we're thinking about uh, Ephesians five, and Paul clearly says the church is the bride, and Christ is. Um, Christ is the, uh, the bridegroom, the husband. Um, here, the bride is also described as a city. And so, it, is this a people or is this a place? Um, and I think the answer is both. The, the, the New Jerusalem is a place, and it's also a people. Um, the people who make up the place. And we, we see that throughout the rest of the book, back in chapter 19, when um, the bride was uh, clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, and so the saints are the ones who clothe it. Um, we saw it in chapter 3. One of the promises to the conquerors is that they would be pillars in the New Jerusalem. Uh, we see that later in this chapter when the, um, the, the pillars and the, the gates, they are the, uh, of the 12 apostles and the, and the 12 tribes, and, and we all... Um, argue that it's the, the fullness of the people of God. And so uh, it is the, the people of God, yet it's also a place. And so um, it's the same metaphor that Paul uses. He uses it a little differently here. Uh, but this is a very uh, regular metaphor used to talk about the people of God in um, Isaiah uh, 61 and 62. This is looked forward to. Um, I mentioned Ephesians 5. And so there, there's places where the scriptures talk about 
the people of God as his, his bride. And so we find that here um, also as it is a, a, a description of the, the future place. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Might there be a reason why it's capitalized? Uh, what? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And so there's uh, in in Greek there's it's not capitalized or non-capitalized. They don't use um, capital letters. Um, but uh, but yeah, the translators make the decision to capitalize that, and I think it's a good decision because it's um, yeah, it's it's. It's the it is the church. It is the the, the people of God, and so it's um, yeah. That's a, just a way to kind of signify the um, the, the special um, place that it has. So it's like a proper noun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we capitalize. Um, and so John is whisked up in the spirit to a great high mountain. It's the same description that uh, we find in Ezekiel when Ezekiel is given the vision of his temple. And so that clues us in that there's a lot of similarities in what they're going to be describing. Uh, and, and he sees the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Um, and it has a great high wall with 12 gates. There's 12 angels at the gates. The name of the 12 tribes are on uh, the gates Three east gates, three uh, west gates, three north, three south, and they each have one of the one of the names. Um, it's like you find that same, almost that same exact imagery at the end of Ezekiel 48 when it talks about the gates. Um, so you have the twelve tribes that they're represented on the gates, and then when you look at the foundations of the walls, you have more twelve. It has twelve foundations, uh, but the twelve names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So more 12 here. And obviously it's it's a significant number because throughout Scripture you have the 12 tribes and then Christ has his 12 apostles. We've talked about um, that several times throughout the book as it comes up. 12, especially when these are two together, it's it's the the fullness um, of something, the completeness, and also the fullness now of the people of God because not only do you have the 12 tribes, you have the 12 apostles. You don't only have the 12 apostles and leave out the 12 tribes, you have both. And so it's the fullness of the people of God. This city of God is going to be the people of God from both the Old and New Testament, from, from all time. It is, that's what it represents, is that it is, it is uh, made up of all of his people. And that's, uh, I believe, what we saw in chapter 7, with the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, um, 12 times 12, and then it's, you find the great multitude, it's the fullness of the people of God, uh, and what we, that's what we have here is, is the, the fullness of the people of God. And so that's, again, how this is uh, a, a people and also a place. Um, does all that make sense? Any, any questions or comments? Okay. Um, Literarily, even that's just genius. <laughs> it is, yeah. To, a picture showing that. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it, again, just seeing the unity of Scripture and how that all works out with the twelves, and then.
comes to its climax. Um, it's the whole idea of that fullness, and it's so well described, it also speaks of God's sovereignty. It yeah. has turned out exactly as God has planned. It, it, there is a, it's not like, oh, well, you know, um, oh, so-and-so didn't show up, it's too bad. You know, no, everyone who God wanted there is there. It is the fullness. There's no one missing. It is the fullness of God's plan. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to, um, to note the, the fact that it, the, the, 12 name, the 12 apostles are the foundation of the people of God. And Paul makes a similar point in Ephesians 4 with the apostles being the foundation uh, of the church. Christ is the cornerstone. Um, but the apostolic testimony, the apostolic teaching, um, which is the New Testament, but also is connected with the old. This is what, what is the, the foundation of the church, the word of God, the message of God, the gospel. Um, and so this serves as the foundation. Uh, in verse 5, we, we find a, another angel with a measuring rod. We saw this in chapter 11. Uh, this imagery is drawn from Ezekiel as he sees the temple, and then also uh, Zechariah um, chapter 2. Um, the reason that the measuring rod, what it, what it, uh, what it symbolizes is uh, safety and protection. It's, uh, it's as uh, we talked about earlier with while the measurements, um, everything is according to plan. It's measuring and, and making sure everything is right. And it also denotes the, the protection of this place. And uh, really interesting, um, interesting note here in, in verse 16, and this is where the importance of the measurements comes in. Uh, the city lies four square. It's a square. Its length, the same as its width, the city is measured with a rod, and it's 12,000 stadia. Uh, its length and width and height are equal. Um, what shape did he just describe? Is anyone? Cube. 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 Described a cube. Um, so he likes geometry. Uh, is there anywhere else in the Bible that there's a cube? Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. There's only one other place where there's a cube in the Bible. And it is in uh, the temple, which Solomon builds. Uh, and in 1 Kings 6.20, um, I'll turn there real quick and read. So this is Solomon building the temple. Uh, the inner sanctuary, that is the, the Holy of Holies, was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. It was overlaid with pure gold. And so it's a cube. Um, and the Holy of Holies, obviously the inner sanctuary, this is the place where, uh, where, where the presence of God was. You had the inner sanctuary, you had the outer sanctuary and the outer court, uh, the court of the Gentiles. You had all these different layers essentially to the temple. Um, and once a year, the, the priest entered into the Holy of Holies uh, and, and, and came before the presence of God. Um, so that the, the cube, it, it's, it's, it's about the, the complete presence of God. And here, the whole city is a cube. It's not just about it being a literal physical cube that we all will live in someday. Um, I, I was, was taught this one time, um, and I, that is what I thought for a while, and I, uh, it was several years ago I got my wisdom teeth out, and you like to see those videos on Facebook where you know people get their wisdom teeth out and they're uh, 
all drugged up and they say random stuff. And I kept talking about how, Mom, do you know how big heaven's going to be? It's going to be a giant golden cube. Um, and I was talking about how there was going to be inner tubing in heaven and uh, banana cream smoothies, which I really like from Squeeze and Grind. Um, my view on heaven has changed a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that hasn't changed, but the, the size maybe. Um, and the, the significance here, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely massive if you look at this. And so, and again, as I mentioned, it wouldn't fit literally on Jerusalem. It's, it's huge, um, which I think speaks to the fact that the, the presence of God is, is just going to be everywhere. Uh, and the fact that it's a cube, and the only other place that's a cube is the Holy of Holies, uh, it, it, that the whole city is the presence of God, which we'll see. Unlike the original temple, this temple is changed. It only includes the Holy of Holies. Uh, there's, no, um, there's no outer court. There's no uh, a whole temple structure and a, a, a court of the Gentiles of the nations. Uh, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles or nations, uh, it's no longer needed, it's no longer there, because the nations are now allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, This speaks to, again, the universal nature of redemption, that it's not just one ethnic group, it's all peoples. You don't need a separate court for everyone who is not a Jew, because God has redeemed through the blood of Christ a people from all nations, and now they, they come through the blood of the Lamb directly into his presence. And so the whole city is the presence of God. Uh, just God, God is everywhere. As we talked about at the end of Ezekiel, uh, the name of the city, God is there, and that is what, what we have here so we were reading this. It's just a speculative thing. Just from my mind, it helps a tiny bit. It's obviously not accurate, but that um, it was 1,500 yeah. miles. Yeah, it's about like the size of Maine to Florida. Yeah. And if there were 100 billion people through history, and perhaps 20% of them were saved, that would be like 75 acres per person. <laughs> that seems like a small number of people. <laughs> well, I'm going to five acres of God's presence. I don't know. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, God, God will be, and as we saw in Eden, it was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, a smaller location. It was uh, the, it's the land from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, um, and that is actually the size of the Promised Land. I would argue that Eden is the Promised Land. Another topic. Um, but then, as we get to the, the uh, new creation, it's so much bigger. It is just all-encompassing of uh, God's presence in, in the earth. And, um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Um, it's huge. Um, Linda, who just left, asked me earlier. She thought it would be a stupid question. It's not a stupid question. Uh, what's the deal with an angel's measurement in verse 17? Um, it says, he also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I don't really have any idea. (laughs) Uh, So there's that. Uh, As we get into uh, these next few verses, it gives this this list of all these jewels. Um, Some of them I don't even know how to pronounce. Uh, I don't know that we should speculate about 
the, about each one of these different types of jewels and rocks or whatever, um, I think part of what it, what it speaks to, again, it's, it's, there's 12 different, uh, different, um, different jewels. Uh, it's, it, it, talk, it speaks to the beauty of this place. It is, it is more beautiful than anything we can imagine. 12, the number 12, it has the fullness of all of this beauty. Um, it draws on the depiction um, and, and future focus of God's dwelling in, uh, in Isaiah 54 and in Ezekiel 28. And even in Genesis 2, um, there is a mention of several stones. And so uh, this is, again, similar to Eden, yet it is, it is so much more. And so in Genesis 2, um, uh, let's see, the whole land uh, was full of gold. Gold in that land was good. Uh, Bdellium and onyx stone are there. And so uh, there, there's these stones in Eden. And now there's, similarly, there's stones that adorn the new Jerusalem. Um, yet it's, it's way greater than even that was. Uh, cities of gold, gates of pearl. Uh, there's, there's glass, this transparent glass everywhere. It's, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful picture. And then we get into the last couple sections. Uh, there's no temple in the city. For the temple is Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Again, the whole city is the Holy of Holies. The whole city is uh, the temple, so to speak. But it's, it's not even the temple. It's, it's just the, the whole place is the presence of God. And it's not only Lord God Almighty. It's the Lamb who is here made equal with the Lord God. Uh, several verses later in 22, it's the, you have the throne of God and the Lamb. and So it's things like this where I don't know how much clearer you could be that the Lamb is God, but um, you know, some people seem set on denying that. And, and so, yeah, yeah. And, and this, this is amazing that the, the whole city is, uh, is, is God. And so we read, we read here that the, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the, the lamb. Um, by its light, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring, bring their glory into it. Um, again, this, this speaks to uh, the, the universal nature of, of God's people now. It's, it's uh, the nations or the Gentiles who will walk in light. Um, different people will bring in glory and its gates will never be shut. There will be no night there. Uh, the reason its gates will never be shut, and, and again, this is, this is partly, it's again important to realize that this is apocalyptic, that this is, is uh, very symbolic. It wouldn't exactly make sense if there are these giant walls that are, uh, that are extremely high that no one's going to be able to get over, um, which speak to the safety and protection of this place. But then the gates are always open. You know, it doesn't, uh, well, it doesn't seem very safe. And, but uh, but the, the, the reason the gates are open is uh, there, there's no need to be afraid. And also the gates are open because all peoples uh, stream in, all those who, who are saved. And so there, there's beauty in that. Uh, there's no night. There's no, no darkness. It mentions that at the end of 21 and then also again in 22. And this is... This is significant. Um, 
In the very beginning, God speaks everything into existence and he uh, speaks the light. Let there be light. Uh, beforehand, the, the, the land was, uh, was deserted. It was uh, a wilderness and God uh, prepares it for his people. He, uh, he, he causes there to be light. And so the, the presence of God is associated with light and in Eden there is light. We know the story of the fall, that people uh, continue to rebel against God. Eventually we get to uh, uh, the, the story of the Exodus and the people of God who are taken out of Egypt. They are going to be led into the promised land. They are led into the promised land. Uh, they don't, they don't uh, stay there for very long until things keep spiraling out of control. And in the, rest of the, uh, in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament, when God's people rebel and they are exiled, uh, it, 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 it speaks as it's almost the undoing of the, the creation. Um, in, in Jeremiah 4 it is a great place to go. Um, it talks about the land, the, the promised land, after having been after the people of God have been exiled and God has judged them, it says, I looked on the land and behold, it was without form or void. It was, it was desolate wilderness. It actually is this, the very same words that it uses in Genesis 1, 1, 2, before God prepares the land for his people. And so it's because of the exile, it's like, there is now, uh, it, it, things are undone. This is, is b- worse than before Eden. The heavens or the skies had no light. And so the exile resulted in, uh, in darkness, in this um, undoing of creation in some ways. But now, in the new creation, nothing can remove the light. God's people will not rebel. They will not be sent into exile, which results in darkness. Um, Even as we, we, Greg referenced earlier in his sermon at the end of Isaiah 8, which speaks about uh, the judgment of the exile and they were in darkness. Um, God's people will no longer be in darkness um, by their rebellion, sin, um, or, or anything else. They will be in light. Nothing can remove this light not the exile, and also even we saw in uh, the beginning of Revelation, we, I, I mentioned earlier the already not yet and how you have the, the present church and the perfected church. In the present church, uh, the churches are lampstands, but those churches can lose their lampstands. They can lose their, uh, their privilege to serve as the presence of God, as the light of God to the world. In the future, that's impossible because it is not the churches that are. It's not the church that is providing light. It is God Himself who has renewed all things and who is light Himself. No one can revoke that. Um, light is, is a major theme in all of Scripture, and and here it's it's clear. It's uh, it is the presence of God. It is safe. Um, darkness is is evil. It is wicked. I, I, don't, I don't know if there will be like 
bedtime and daytime, whatever, uh, in, in heaven, I think what this speaks to is, is there, there's not going to be any danger, not going to be any um, rebellion or sin or death or weakness. All that darkness is gone. In verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Um, even though the gates are open, um, you're safe. You're in the presence of the Lamb. No, no sin will be present. Um, those promises are given to in Isaiah 52 and Joel 3.17, Ezekiel 44. Uh, and here we find the consummation. And as we go into 22, the angel now shows John the river of the water of life. It's bright as crystal and it's flowing from the throne. It's coming out of the presence of God and of the Lamb. The river of the water of life should bring back uh, our, our attention to Ezekiel 47. Again, in the, the description of the future temple in Ezekiel, you have a river uh, which is flowing from the temple. Also in Eden, you have a river which is flowing through the land and provides um, life and vegetation. Here you have the river flowing from the presence of God. Uh, this is the, the, sustaining, the sustaining water and, uh, and nourishment that was mentioned in 21. Come and drink from the fountain of life. Come and drink the waters of life. The river that, that flows constantly throughout the entire uh, city it, it is uh, it is available to all who are there and it sustains them yeah yeah exactly uh, and so uh, there's another connection with Eden and again another connection with Eden the tree of life here it has 12 kinds of fruit it's another use of the number 12 um, and it provides food for those who are, are there, just as it was promised earlier in the letters to the churches. Are there now two trees? Sorry? It says that there, there's the, the tree of life, and, and so uh, it, there, there does seem to be on either side of the liver, uh, uh, the river, uh, not the liver, uh, either side of the river, uh, there's, there's trees, uh, the tree of life, and it, it bears fruit. Um, there is no evil, and so there is, there is uh, no um, no access to, to that in the New Jerusalem. Uh, the leaves of this tree, they're for the healing of the nations. Again, this is for all people, all types of people, the healing of the Gentiles. Uh, this is promised in uh, Zechariah. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp, uh, no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's mentioned several of those things twice now, and it's repeated it. Uh, it shows us that's very important when it comes to the, the New Jerusalem, the, uh, this, the future city. What is it going to be like? Well, it is going to be uh, beautiful, as we saw in the uh, depiction of its materials and of its um, of the measurements, it is going to be safe, as we see with the the, the height of the walls uh, and and with the size of the city, uh, it's it's going to be safe from evil and from darkness. Those will not be present because God, who is light, will be there. 
we see that it, it will also be full of the presence of God. The presence of God is at the center of all of this. The presence of God is what secures and guarantees this safety, this, um, this security, this eternal uh, glory and, uh, and, and being sustained by the water of, of life and the, the, tree of the uh, tree of life. And so the presence of God is at the center of all of this, which is so key. Um, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations if it's if we're already in heaven. Yeah, it's so uh, no Yeah, and so the, the nations are not unbelieving nations. They're they're uh, people from the nations who have been saved. Again, Revelation seven, uh, the, the, the Lamb has purchased people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And so uh, in the new creation, those who were formerly outside of the people of God uh, have been brought in. All types of people are here. And uh, the, the tree of life, God's presence and God's um, nourishment, his, his sustenance for us, it is, uh, it, it is provided for all people. And so the nations, not just Israel, find their healing in uh, the New Jerusalem. Which is not that beautiful. more healing needs to be done. Yeah, they're, they're healed there, but it's also saying the baggage that you were carrying as sinful human beings is now gone through the healing. You know, yeah, the, the against nation, the, prejudice against prejudice, all this baggage that we carry as people is completely. Yeah, the the completeness they will be complete there. Um, what we find in, in these chapters is the restoration of of peace or uh, shalom in Hebrew. And uh, that is one of the one of the promises of, of all of Scripture is this future restoration of peace. We saw in the passage this morning, um, the uh, Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah who is to come. He is the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. Um, peace in the Bible, it's not just about uh, it's not just about you know st- stopping all the evil that's going on. It's about the complete absence of it. And that uh, it's not just that God, you know, presses pause on on sin and wickedness, but that it is totally removed, uh, that it is totally absent. Uh, nothing accursed will be in that city. Nothing unclean will enter it. Uh, only God and his people will be there. I love verse 4. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Be no more night. God will be their light. In, in the scripture, it talks about not, you know, no one can see the face of God. And yet, in the New Jerusalem, we will see him. We will stand before him. Um, we will, in reverence, bow at his majesty and his holiness and his glory. And we also experience the, the overwhelming abundance of his love and mercy and grace and peace in verse Amazing. 5 it says uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever they, is that the trinity? Uh, no, they, they, is, they is the people of God Yeah, who, who get to reign with, with uh, the lamb 
feels like such a climactic picture here as you get to that section, just when it says that we'll see his face and then the, the final piece of reigning forever and ever. I just, it might sound silly, but I just, when you read this whole passage, I can almost just hear like cheering, like it's just getting louder and louder and louder because it's just so amazing. Yeah, and, and at the center of um, all the text that we went through tonight, really the, the, the center of it all, um, both uh, literarily in the text, but also literally in the New Jerusalem, is the, the, the presence of God. And so what, what this should do for us is, is, one, provide us with hope and joy and peace, um, but also it, it can can re uh, it can can convict us and re refocus our our attention um, I think a lot of times and, and I'm guilty of this myself just just wanting to you know we make we make Christianity and we make the gospel about just being saved and I get to go to heaven and and that's great um, and you know maybe we even he you know, heaven will be like I talked about I'll get to inner tube and have smoothies um, or I'll get to, to be with my loved ones. Um, I'll get to, you know, I, I won't have to deal with all these, these aches that I have and these diseases or the cancer that's plagued me or uh, my family. Uh, I won't have to, um, to, to face uh, any sin. And, 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 and yes, that's all true. Maybe not the inner tubing part, but the rest of that is, it's yes. But that is not the, the most important thing. The most important thing is, is that we will be with God. And so it's not just about getting to go to heaven. Um, it, it, it's, it's about getting God. God is the gospel. In the gospel, we don't just you know, get to, uh, to have our best life now or we don't just get to, uh, to... It's not even about ultimately about us just being forgiven of our sins or... or um, or, or being free from, um, from the enslavement of these things. It's about us getting God, and that is what drives all those other things. In the gospel, we get God, which we could not have uh, in our sin. We would not want in our sin. Uh, the very first humans, Adam and Eve, they had God, and yet they uh, rebelled against him. And the rest of Scripture moves us toward the time when we get God. Um, and if we die now, we could go be with God. That's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I long to go be with God. And at the very end, when Jesus returns and things are fully consummated, fully brought uh, to completion, we will be with God forever. We will worship Him forever if, if, you know, if that's not what, what, what sounds great about heaven, if you are looking forward to something else, if you're not looking forward to, to worshiping the Lord, um, then you should, you should check your heart in that. And, and the book of Revelation should certainly convict us in every, every song, every prayer is about God. It's about His goodness, His, his acts of salvation, uh, the, the, the slain lamb. And now as we end scripture, uh, the end, the story of the entire Bible, it's about the presence of God and being with God. And that is, um, that is, that is the center of this passage today in all the details and all the descriptions, all the measurements. It's about 
in the future, we will be with God. And there is no better news than that. Um, that is the, the center of the good news, and uh, that is the center of our, our hope as Christians. What we place our hope in is in, uh, as it mentioned in Hebrews, which I read, in the city that is to come. Because in that city, we get God in all of his fullness and all of his glory and all of his majesty. Uh, and we, we get to, to be with him. And so that's beautiful. And so I hope that uh, this passage impacted you this week as it uh, certainly impacted me. Um, Diane, any other question? Any, any other thoughts as well that we can? Well, if we're to rule and reign with Christ, and rule, reign, judge. Who are we going to rule over this creation? Is it going to be a garden with animals in it? Are we going to be like Adam, name the animals, or whatever? Uh, we, if we're all going to rule and reign over, you know, that seems like a lot of people ruling and reigning. Yeah. You know, and yeah. judging, who are we going to judge? Yeah, I, I don't know what exactly that rule looks like. Um, and obviously, we are not, you know, on par with with Christ. Uh, yet He invites us into um, this rule over the earth and over the new creation. Um, Paul does say we will judge angels. I don't know exactly what that means. Most people don't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, um, yet, uh, yeah, we we will we, we will reign in some way. Yeah, I, I don't know what it. Uh, I don't know what it looks it like. Looks like either, but I think there is something in here. <laughs> go back to like what happened um, what was showing the like prior um, you know um, death and Hades were thrown into like the fire and then we look at what the tree of life is here is it's giving healing I think the rain is also expressing a permanence of this victory so permanence I mean all the victories in yeah because it's you will reign forever and ever all the victories of mankind on this earth whether they're Bible and other places never been occurred. The battles and the best of um, intentions always end up cycling downward because of man. This this reign is an ex- this is an existence with God of permanent goodness and greatness, permanent victory. In death and sin are thrown away forever. So I think the reign is is a recognition in part that eternal existence without those things, they have been triumphed, they have been defeated forever. So it's not like a ranking among Christians or anything like that. So. I also, it also makes me think back to so much of the Genesis um, story that's here at the end of Revelation in that that was the relationship, the, dis, the, the perfect relationship that God was establishing between he and man is that there would be this picture of them ruling and reigning together over God's creation. And I, so I don't know that it's, I wonder, I wonder if it's bringing us back to that picture, to what Joel is saying, that it's not, a, it's not as much about what that will look like we're doing or being, but it will simply, it's the picture, the symbolic picture of everything is right and back the way God had originally intended it to be, that man would rule and reign with God over all of his creation. And it's better than it originally was. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if it's about doing as much as just showing the right relationship again. Speaking of it being better, I was thinking in Genesis when God created the world, He made light and dark and called it good, but then there won't be any dark. So that kind of, there's a little 
Huh? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting idea. And then another thought was that we'll have fruit each month, so will there be time? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's probably different timing. Yeah, uh, that's one thing we'll... Uh, that's one thing I'll bring up um, in our final week um, when we uh, will we'll walk through some, uh, some major themes in Revelation. And I introduced uh, this thing called biblical theology a couple weeks ago. And so that's actually one thing that I think we find in Revelation is a, a theology of time. Um, and we'll talk about that. So um, that'll be something to look forward to. But yeah, any other uh, thoughts or reflections or just ways that... Uh, this passage impacted you this week as you uh, you read it. And also, he says we can see God's face, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. 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 I just think, I mean, the one thing that keeps striking me over and over is, I mean, everything's everything is great. One person is thirsty. I mean, um, let's see. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without pain. And just that the hunger and thirst for righteousness and to being in God's presence. Um, and that's so much what I long for. I, I look forward so much to that healing of my, for myself, you know, in that tree. And so all that stuff is like, I just can't wait for that, for all that to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, these are amazing truths as we uh, live in this already not yet, as we live in a world that uh, is so in need of healing, is so in need of um, God's, uh, God's fixing, and we, we feel that in, in so many different ways, whether it's uh, in, in our own bodies or in our families or looking out on the news or the things that happen in our world, um, we, we see that that. Things are not as as they should, and uh, this text promises us that uh, God will make all things new. He will make them right, so we can find great hope. I'm having a rough day. It's another day closer. All right. Well, um, we will call it there. for next week, uh, just read the rest of chapter 22. Um, you don't, by any means, have to do this. If you want to, it might be good to, if you can, like you did at the very beginning of the study, you read through the whole book, whether it's in one sitting or a couple sittings. Um, but it would be good whether you do that this week or uh, maybe you have some time over the holidays to sit down. And now that we've gone through the whole book, to reflect back on that and to read it again and see what stands out, see if, um, if you're, you're struck by anything, anything new, if something makes more sense, um, it, it would be, be good to do that. So, uh, but yeah, next week we'll tackle the rest of the book. Uh, we, will, we will be finished and then we'll have one more session. Um, and next week I'll, I'll talk about some uh, plans that uh, Pastor Gary and I have been thinking about just for the future and continuing to have uh, Sunday night type things like this, and so we'll, uh, we'll discuss some of that. But uh, great to be back with you, and look forward to uh, next week. So God bless.